0: A podcast about dining in the South and beyond. I'm Robert Moss, the author of Barbecue, the History of an American Institution.
1: And I'm Hannah Raskin, food editor at the Post and Courier.
0: Well, this week we're doing the transparency and cover ups edition of The Winnow because we're talking about various attempts to bring things to light or to keep things from coming to light uh, in in various types of of, of food situations. And we sort of will start off, I think, Hannah, with the uh, the AFJ, which is the, uh, the Association of F- Food Journalists, um, which has a new emphasis on transparency and their co- new code of ethics, which just came out just, just recently, right? Right.
1: So um, speaking of transparency, I'm the president of the group, <laughs> so I should say that at the outset. Um, I've been on the board for some time, but just started as the president. Um, but prior to taking the presidency, um, I was chairing the ethics committee. So AFJ has always been an ethics first organization. That's how the group got formed um, back in the seventies. The the history of the Association of Food Journalists was they were having some sort of meeting at the time. It was all female newspaper food editors. I mean, just exclusively and. There was a keynote address by an elected official who basically used his time just to berate all the women in the audience <laughs> for for taking free ovens and, you know, cooking free chickens and basically told them that, they you know, they were a bunch of ethics-free, <laughs> probably some word I shouldn't even say. I don't know. It was horribly offensive. Um, and, I, I, you know, a politician at the time giving this lecture yeah. is also – ridiculous but so a number of the women Yeah, because
0: politicians really like never known for taking right. no, kind of consideration. so <laughs>
1: a- a- anyhow they were just the women were um just outraged and they went back to their hotel room and drew up the first bylaws for the association of food journalists and they formed this organization to say we put ethics first so,
0: yeah and the thing though you know yeah. Politicians, le- lectures aside, I think yeah. at the time there was a lot of questions oh, about the tremendous. lot of overlap between oh. marketing and industry. And oh, food I mean, writing. I've
1: talked to food writers from that time who yeah. say like every time the doorbell rang, it was another kitchen appliance. You know, people <laughs> were always delivering like refrigerators. I mean, things that just seem crazy. And there was
0: stuff. I found these things when doing historical research yeah. a lot of times, you know, a a food company would write an article and it just appear under somebody's byline in like Wichita or somewhere and there's just a lot of that going on. There
1: was a tremendous amount of overlap and they would, I mean, yeah, the the food companies and the food writers were all kind of mixed up together and you still would see there was some residue of this in the ethical code all about like you know, you should not promote a contest um, from a food company in which like your work is featured. It was like, (laughs) what is this? And it's clearly from an earlier a time yeah. when you know the bisquick contest was sort of the the you know major major thing in food writing and food coverage. Um so but the, the people who formed this organization wanted to have ethical standards and so that's what it's always been first. So although AFJ in the years hence has you know provided various training opportunities and
0: there's a whole
1: awards program um the the major thrust of this group is to establish an ethical framework for food journalists.
0: Well, I thought it was interesting because I was preparing for the for this episode, I went and sort of the little googling to look up the code of ethics, and uh, I came across not a press release for this new one, but um, some articles that came out in 2013 yes. when there was a revised version of the, the code of ethics. Which the big innovation there was recognizing the blogger and the internet and the camera phone, right. And the way that had changed, yep. uh, food, you know, food writing or, or restaurant reviewing and, and everything else. Yeah, so that
1: I chaired that committee, and that was really fascinating because the ethics code hadn't been touched in so long that there were things. Things in there that just didn't make any sense. You know, we say things like, "Well, you know, allow a week for readers to find an issue of the paper with your." You know, was like, well, this doesn't make any sense. So it was. So it was just clearly outdated um, in terms of the modern media landscape. Um, so that revision was just bringing things into the present and also paving the way to allow AFJ to be a more diverse and inclusive organization. For a long time, AFJ was limited um, in in practice, if not in theory, to people who worked at newspapers. Right. And so, again, so much of that code was like, well, if you don't know what to do, ask your editor. And Which was
0: fine, fine. Back at the time because yeah. who else was writing about food? You exactly. Know, and Right by 2013, lots of people. We
1: essentially this reminds me when I was a kid. There was a time when um, the the whole Reform Judaism movement like made their prayer books gender neutral. I'm sure other people have done this as well. Yeah, this is is, every church has gone through this right where they do revision, and everyone's
0: outraged. So older people and so so
1: that was basically what we had to do is we had to go (laughs) through this document and take out all newspaper references. We (laughs) had to make this whole thing platform neutral, so going forward we could welcome in um, people of any, any professional standing.
0: I thought what was interesting about that one, before we get to the, the yeah. new one, was that um, it, one of the big changes was the review should be conducted as anonymously, anonymously as, as possible. Because yep. there's this recognition that in the era of online photographs, being in, in, anonymous is almost impossible these right. days. That's,
1: or- it, we really wanted these... These goal and that excuse me these goals we wanted this code to be attainable yeah. so we didn't want to say anything that was just in the realm of the impossible <laughs> so to say you should be anonymous as you say is kind of impossible yeah
0: unless you just I mean you would have, it's almost impossible yeah. you know, to, unless you just don't turn on a computer. Pick up your phone or anything. Yep. Or go anywhere in public where there's someone with a cell phone. Right. Because you will get get in pictures and tagged in pictures. Anonymity
1: is one example, but we also wanted to make sure that everything we set out as an ethical standard um, wasn't dependent on the person's financial standing. So it wasn't like, well, you know, you need to self fund 14 meals to a restaurant. That's not going to happen. So what we did in 2013, as you say, is we outlined five core principles of ethical food journalism. That was the big thing. Uh, Prior to that, we hadn't really organized organized the ethics code in quite that way. So um, I'm going to read those now because I think it's important. Uh,
0: These are the 2013 five core? Yeah, and they
1: they remain in place. And they still are. These are the five core principles of ethical food journalism. One, we take pride in our work and respect the work of others. Two, we do not abuse our positions. Three, we avoid conflicts of interest. Four, we recognize and respect diversity. And five, we are committed to total transparency in our work. So, in each of those things, we've explained. You know, many situations that are um, unique to food writing. Obviously, those five principles can apply across the board, no matter what you're covering. Um, but they kind of break down to, to what that means in the realm of food journalism. So what we did most recently is
0: we yeah, – So that was five years ago, right? it was five years so ago. What's changed? Uh... So what's
1: changed is, one, we revisited everything to make sure it was still in line with the, the media landscape as it – as it exists now. and I
0: did notice walking to the Post and Courier, the big stack of stoves that are sitting, <laughs> sitting outside <laughs> yeah. in the, the hall. Stoves,
1: I'll, I'll take all the stoves <laughs> I can get. No. Um, so we did that. But more importantly, we added a whole extra set of guidelines um, acknowledging that many people are in these different situations that we discussed previously. So we now have this whole section called putting the principles to work um, and it, it's, it, the idea is to help people navigate these situations that didn't exist as recently as five years ago. Um, the many press trips that people are constantly being offered, um, the, gosh, I mean, it's, it, it, you know, it, there's so much interest now in uh, social media and influencers and there are constantly offers being made and in many cases accepted. We felt like we needed to weigh in on that dynamic.
0: So, what's the rule on press trips? Because I, I don't know that I've ever been. I've gotten invited to a lot of them. Most of don't have time to get. They'll fly to California and tour some new, you know, restaurant test kitchen yep. for some corporate chain or whatever it is. As yep. they sound like there might be a, you know, fun way to get to California. But what, what's the policy on? So, on I the-
1: mean, traditionally, it, the the rule would have been no, yeah. just no. And we've changed that. The rule now is that's okay. You can do it. But be very aware, um, first of all, throughout the process, know what you're being given, who's giving it to you, and what they expect in exchange for it. So we do ask ethically, if you feel compelled to accept a press trip, first off, it needs to be expressly for your education that will inform your food writing or an assignment that you've already you know, you've received or set up. You need to be totally candid with everyone involved. One, tell the person offering the press trip, I am promising you nothing. There is no guarantee <laughs> that any coverage will arise from this. If you are later to pitch a story based on that experience, you have to be transparent with the editor saying, this is based in part on an experience that was underwritten by, you know, the government of Barbados or whatever. Um, and additionally, you need to be transparent with your readers, especially if you don't have an editor as an intermediary. Say you're an online just reporter, um, then you need to tell them. So
0: That's an interesting dynamic. Um, I was thinking through it because, you know, my, my, my initial impulse is I have like a negative – reaction to oh um, press junket whatever like i want to do that but then yeah. if i and i'm not in a position where i have to make a living uh solely from writing fortunately and and i travel a ton for other reasons so it's not like i'm sitting around just not ever able, able to leave town right uh, in fact i like being in town is <laughs> yep. rare but if i was trying to do that 100 percent, i can certainly see how like if i could get somebody to Take me to California. How, you know, how else will we fun to trip? That's very Right. How trip, else will you know? get there? And if you're if
1: you want to write about wine knowledgeably, yeah. it really helps to go to the vineyard. And that doesn't mean necessarily that you're gonna write a story about, oh my gosh, this is, you know, the most productive vineyard in all of Northern California. But it means maybe that you've learned how wine is made and you'll have that in the back of your mind when, you know, a Sommelier is giving you some shtick in a restaurant. Um, so it's really hard to 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 deny people those really Honestly, educational opportunities.
0: Yeah. And there's just so few publications these days with travel budgets oh, that right, will pay you to, to go anywhere. And I, I, I hit that a lot right. when I'm doing freelancing, as that, the, you know, whoever there just say, well, yeah, but. Uh, we can pay you this much, but we have no travel budget. (laughs) We have no permissions budget also for photographs and things, which used to be a a deal between books. And it's pretty much, you got to bootstrap everything now as a writer. You can't, you know, very few publications. One of the things
1: we suggest, which seems rather nuanced, but I think it really makes a difference. If you are to accept a press trip, we much prefer that it come from like a conglomerate of organizations rather than one business or one, you know. Um, So if they say like, oh, you know, we're the, the, you know, the business group of, of Reno or yeah. whatever. <laughs> it, you know, I, it, the more you have involved so you're not beholden to a single source. That's true. Uh, I did get invited by is.
0: the Pork Council. So they have yeah, to say I never yeah, did this exactly. of North Carolina to judge a whole hog barbecue yeah. competition they yep. have up there, which is yep. an interesting experience. I never wrote anything about it, but I got a trip well, they they, they reimbursed me for my travel up yeah. there, to Raleigh. Yep. So, but it was by the pork council. So I guess I'm now, you know, the Texans can accuse me of being in the pocket <laughs> of big pork, I guess. But, right. but no one producer. right? Know,
1: and so I mean that was that's a big part of how, you know, we've revised this ethics code or at least enhanced it to say think about how that looks. You know, I mean you yep. may know what it means to you, but think, you know, think about how it looks. We did say we added these three questions that we suggest that food writers ask themselves whenever they evaluate an opportunity, which are these. Am I being fair and rigorous in my reporting process? Am I being honest to my sources, editors, and readers about the circumstances surrounding the production and publication of this piece? And am I putting the public's needs first, or am I making this decision with an eye toward personal or professional gain? Because there are a lot of times on these press trips, it's one thing to take a press trip, but then when you take a press trip and you go to your hotel room, and you know, and they've left you. Uh, stove to take home. You know, you're like, well, what?
0: Oh, hey. well, now I got to check my bags. Yeah, so exactly. Right. <laughs> right, right,
1: right. They're all these add-ons. And so that's what we're really encouraging food writers to do or food journalists to do is to be vigilant and to say, OK, here's what I'm here for. This is that, you know, this is the pleasure piece we're going to cut out of it. Any gift of, you know, of unne- any unnecessary gift needs to be, you know, returned, things like that. It was really interesting presenting on the, this new and revised ethics code at the recent um, conference for Association. Food journalist, because suddenly it was like I was the expert on ethics, which. um,
0: (laughs) That's a a lot of weight to carry on your shoulders.
1: You know? It's it yeah it's it yeah exactly but so people were then coming up to me like I could give them absolution so they would talk to me quietly like well I just want to tell you about and it was really it was really strange I felt can you like so I needed so that a they confession can, booth can... it was exactly like that and they wanted me to say like no no it's fine I understand where you're coming from and then, and I had to be the one to say. No. Yep. No. <laughs>
0: I <can't do laughs> well, that. I mean the transparency goes a long way because as a reader, when I'm reading somebody who's writing about traveling to a farm or traveling yep. to some factory, when they make clear that they were there as part of Oftentimes they'll, they'll make clear they're there as part of a you know a, a, a group of journalists, so you, or they'll, they're there at the invitation mm-hmm. of whoever. They mention the fact that the PR person was showing them around. That goes a long way because I'm like, okay, now I, I I know why they're there, but you know I, I can take some of the stuff with a grain of salt because right. they probably weren't taken to the. You know, the dirty, shameful corner of the factory. <laughs> right, you know. but
1: they probably weren't. And this is the but other they consideration. The building, yeah. They were in the building and probably taken to places they may not have had access yeah. to otherwise. And that's the interesting part. You know, Monsanto has put on these press trips that there's been some discussion of. And a lot of really respected food journalists have gone on them because if you want an E into the Monsanto yeah. empire, that's kind of the way And I've read pieces in.
0: written by people yep. who made that clear. And, yep. and they were good pieces. And I didn't yeah. feel like – I mean, obviously, how can you tell someone has been – Compromised, compromised a bias, right. but the the piece read very fairly, and and they were critical of of you know a lot of things in the piece as well. So it was it, it did make it a little bit more balanced of a of a story, and mm-hmm. so I, yeah, that's interesting dynamics.
1: Yeah. The whole thing is, I mean, we're, we're all working on that. I mean, I listened to some of the confessions that came to me. I was like, yeah, me too. You know, like some of these things, some of these things are really hard. Like, um, one writer had admitted to me that she sometimes, if she already knows she's known in a place where she's reviewing, or if she knows she's not coming back, she'll just throw over a credit card with her actual name on it. I do that too because it, the um, I can't through I can't get a company card through the paper with a yeah. fake name. I have credit cards with fake names that are personal to me, but it's not the company card.
0: And yeah, but at that point, you're now going the other way of you know you're you're taking out you're, that's not transparent to use a different name on your card, right? I mean, I know well, you want to be as anonymous, be as, as, anonymous, possible, anonymous but, as possible. be as anonymous as
1: possible. We still say that you should, if possible, not identify yourself in any way, which. It historically or traditionally has been a credit card and a fake name yeah. or cash.
0: I said cash seems like the cash native, is, it's more straightforward way to do it.
1: But. More honest than cash. <laughs> so, um, but so she said she. As I said, so she said she does this. I do this. I mean, there's it's it, nobody's perfect, yeah. but it's good to think about the things we can work on.
0: Speaking of transparency, uh, transparency in, in a, of a totally different sort, but one uh, food and beverage related, um, transparency in booze, or at least in uh, alcoholic beverages. This came up um, recently with me, uh, I was interviewed, Kathleen Purvis actually, of the a good friend of the podcast of uh, Charlotte Observer and also writing for Our State Magazine, he reviewed me for an article about punch because I've written a lot about punch in the past, and I talked about sort of the, you know, the the decline of punch in the 1850s as the cocktail sort of replaced the punch bowl in bars, but then the way that the punches lived on in the South, which I think we've talked about a bunch, like things like the Charleston Light Dragoon Punch and the Chatham Artillery Punch, all these great militia punches, and even like the St. Cecilia Society Punch here in Charleston. Yeah, you know, that was sort of in the South. P- very, very alcoholic <laughs> concoctions uh, in punch bowls were were popular straight up until till Prohibition. Uh, it's sort of a, the the party beverage, and then we all know that they went out of favor and they all d- disappeared um, in Prohibition. Except they were replaced by these like punch bowls full of either you know, the, the fruity non alcoholic punches. The kind that kind always would have like lime sherbet or something. Floating around in it, uh, and then David Wondrich and others sort of brought back the punch bowl uh, during the craft cocktail movement days and rediscovered the glories. But the question came up: So, what happened to punch in the uh, in, in the, during Prohibition, and, and what happened to spiking the punch, or where the, the notion of spiking a punch come from? Um, and I didn't have the answer for that to to, to the, the interview question, um, and I knew it was somewhere in between Prohibition and and then, like the church fellowship hall punch, when people would start pouring in some alcohol, but uh, I didn't really have a, have a sense of where it came from. Do you? I don't know if you've.
1: I, I don't know if I'm following you. The idea just to add alcohol to a fruit punch. Well, is yeah, what there's we're there's, about? A,
0: there's been a long running tradition in the South yeah. of spiking the punch, uh, or, or really but isn't the punch the already alcoholic? Well, not if you're at the uh, Methodist church, okay, uh, and you're having the the punch in the you know at the, at the wedding receptions, mm-hmm. and, and certainly I think this is just a sign of how things have changed so much in the South, even since I was a kid. So much of the South was dry, right. um, dry counties up until, you know, really the last 20, 30 years. Most, there still are some, but most mm-hmm. have, have reversed those laws. But just, you know, the respectable church life in general, you wouldn't have alcohol. Very few churches um, outside, like oh. the Catholic Church, <laughs> the Episcopal Church, uh, even today will have alcohol at their function. So if you, you know, but the punch bowl was very common at parties and it at churches and things like that. But frequently at weddings, someone would spike the punch, which would mean they would bring a bottle of vodka or something like that and glug, glug, glug it into the punch uh, so that all the adults would have a good old time, And but no one would really know about it. So that, that whole thing about spiking the punch and, and that sort of you know covering up alcohol was sort of interesting because to me, it turned things on its head. The whole way that the militia punches got started was it was a way to disguise alcohol with sugar and a little citrus mm-hmm. so that people drinking it wouldn't they knew they were drinking liquor that so there wasn't like you were trying to hide that fact they wouldn't know how strong it was it was a way of cutting the strength so you could down it and like the Chatham artillery punch those legendary militia punches the thing about him was that they would they would invite uh, militia units from other cities to come visit Savannah and then invite them after the drill to the big party and try to drink them under the table with this punch because because they knew how strong it was but the uh, Their their victims or their guests didn't. It it totally flipped around, um, so that it became the other way around. So that you had like these very very fruity drinks that would uh, people wouldn't even know there was alcohol in them, Mm -hmm. and so you would disguise it. Turns out that actually came about in the early twentieth century, even before prohibition. Mm -hmm. Um, And as and so Kathleen was asking me where fruit punches come from, and I don't really know where all those fruit punch non alcoholic punch recipes. How they originated? They originated in the early temperance movement days. That's what I thought. Yeah. yeah. And that this. I is... thought
1: Lemonade Lucy was actually serving punch.
0: Who is Lemonade Lucy? <laughs>
1: that's Benjamin <laughs> Hayes's wife.
0: Hmm? Ben- oh, Benjamin <laughs> Hayes. Okay. <laughs> yeah.
1: I think that's right. We'll, oh, we'll have to go look that, look that okay. one. Up. Okay.
0: <laughs> yeah. She may may well have been. So what happened was that um, you know you had all these temperance reformers encouraging people when they have parties. Don't serve your traditional, like, St. Cecilia's Society punch with all the alcohol in it. Serve a temperance punch. and But if you don't have... Um you know, three quarters of it booze. What what do you put in there? So that's when you started getting a lot of other different types of fruit juices and other than just lemon or lime juice put into it. Well,
1: and it's also when you start getting a whole lot of other fruits.
0: Yes. I mean, you
1: get the transcontinental railroad, suddenly you've got a lot of California grapefruits.
0: And you you see, it's interesting those, that same period, you see a lot of punch recipes for canned fruits. Like Mm -hmm, you would open up a can of pineapple, sliced pineapple, dump it in there with all the juices. And that's when they really started getting fruited up.
1: Well, you still see pineapple Rings floating in a punch. Oh folder. yeah, you
0: definitely do, yeah. and, and uh, you know it's floating a bunch of fruit on top of yeah it, uh, cherries and, and and all that kind of stuff. That the, the fruitification of punch really came about is, is these temperate punches. I think it was a way to give you something you could drink that you know was sort of similar to punch but had no alcohol in it and. You know, they would use ginger ale or, or seltzer water for fizz and, and, and that kind of stuff, which which is now people still pour a whole bunch of ginger ale in with a lime sherbet and making those punches. But the idea of spiking punches, I really f- found those starting to appear. The, the term spike the punch really started appearing in around 1905, 1910, mm-hmm. um, as it became the popular thing for the youth to do.
1: Well, see, I was going to say, that's my association yeah. is collegiate. I always yes. think about because I feel like there's still sororities that, like, put up the punch bowl and it, and it, and now in the Me Too movement it doesn't sound so yeah. funny but like you know like a guy would come by from the fraternity and he'd spike the punch and you
0: yeah know. but even then you really yeah that wasn't even like spiking it there was like you make them in trash cans of like big garbage cans. No, no, punch, no, no! You know? I don't
1: mean what they do at fraternities. That they still oh, do. Yeah. I mean, so there's this like I I have this in mind, like the just <laughs> like the pastoral Midwestern campus and the women in those you know the like the white blouses, the starched blouses, <laughs> and then they'd have a punch bowl with this the fruit punch, and then the the gentleman caller would come by with a little alcohol and put it in the punch
0: bowl. And with,
1: I swear, there's like um, uh, sheet music about this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and the and the the young ladies had absolutely no idea. No
1: idea. They were scandalized.
0: <laughs> absolutely scandalous. Well, that was going on in 1905.
1: <laughs> I, to me, that like, yeah, that just yeah. But that's where the term bite the
0: punch came from as yeah. Right around that that time. That and, sounds right. Um, there was a. a there's like a lot of outrage among these editorials about, you know, the kids these days spiking in their spiked punch and, mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And that continued on right on every th- right through Prohibition. It's, it's a bit of an ugly turn in Prohibition um, because uh, there was a bunch of cases of people getting what they call Jake uh, mm-hmm. right. paralysis from punch that was spiked with bad alcohol. Often it was like. You know, grain alcohol, industrial alcohol of some sort, and yeah. so that was an unpleasant uh, case of, of, trans- of lack of transparency yeah. uh, in the punch. So anyway, that was new to me. I, I sort of knew all about the punches and everything, but I didn't really know where where the term spike the punch" came from, because hmm. punch started off to be being such a fundamentally <laughs> alcoholic thing, and then it went to being such a non-alcoholic thing uh, in the early twentieth century. And Rutherford B. Hayes,
1: not Benjamin Hayes. I was say
0: Rutherford B. <laughs> Hayes. That's <laughs> why eliminate Lucy.
1: But I, now I don't know if she's Benjamin Harrison's wife or <laughs> Rutherford B. Hayes' wife.
0: Should we look it up real quick? Yeah,
1: I'm now I'm curious. So no one liked to come to her party. That was Hayes. Hayes. Yep.
0: Rutherford B. Hayes. Damn it.
1: <laughs> I got that I got the hard part right. How can I forget Rutherford?
0: Star staunch supporter of the temperance movement.
1: Yep. So people would come to parties at the White House thinking that they were going to get <laughs> something good to drink, and she served them punch. And I wouldn't be surprised if someone spiked the White House punch. Well,
0: I pr- would not be surprised. <laughs> would not be surprised. It, Could have been Rutherford himself. <laughs> in fact, that was a whole deal at the in, in the 19th century in Congress. Uh, for a long time, uh, there were bars in. Right. In, actually, in in Congress, the Senate had a bar and the House had a bar. Yep. And running the uh, concession, getting the concession to run the Senate bar was a huge deal. But then, as the temperance movement came along, there was a lot of you know back and forth about that. And they finally kicked the bars out of the out of Congress. Yep. Though the um, the guys who ran the what were then the restaurants certainly knew how to get a little something to the to the senators and the congressmen uh, as they needed it. Lemonade Lucy. That's a new, uh, I'll have to yeah. look oh, more into to the, know the story Lucy. of yeah. Lemonade <laughs> Lu- Lucy in the interest of transparency. Right. <laughs> so if you come to my house, the punch bowl may be there, but I'll be very transparent about what's in it and. uh...
1: All right, and that is all for this edition of The Winnow. We recorded today's episode in the ethical podcasting studios at the Post and Courier building in downtown Charleston, South Carolina. If you enjoy listening to The Winnow, help other listeners find us too. Just go to iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you access your podcasts and like us or leave a rating. The Winnow is a production of The Post and Courier and Palmetto New Media. Our producer today was the punchy... Hmm. Anne-Marie Parker Or radically transparent I'm pretty pretty (laughs) transparent Pretty
0: transparent Relatively transparent
1: Our our theme music Is by the
0: Stone Ramblers Until next time I'm Robert Moss And I'm Hannah Raskin Now get out there and eat